that's that's quite beneficial, I think. And I I think that will help out Ukraine in the medium to long term to fight off any such um, any such silly suggestions by anyone. But the concern certainly was there. The concern certainly still is there to a, to a lesser degree. Oh, thanks a lot. I'll take myself down. Thank you, Clyde. Um, let's go to Hendrik and then back to Tom. Hendrik, go ahead. Yeah, I'm uh, <clears throat> very interested in what's happening to the Wagner Group. Uh, as uh, the uh, situation in Russia seems to be getting very uh, bad for the oligarchs and their control. And the Wagner Group has been, let's say, an outside force that has been in, under control of the Wagner Group. I wonder, with the uh, losses they've suffered, really, whether or not uh, the people involved with the Wagner Group will cut their losses and uh, take Putin out. I, I see uh, the uh, vacuum of power uh, needs to be preserved, or the power needs to be preserved in Russia, and that uh, the, uh, there's a lot of animosity going on. And I think it's uh, a uh, matter of fact that fairly soon, I think we're going to see a major uh, action internally with the dissatisfaction uh, with Putin. So the Wagner Group is not nearly high level enough to do anything like this. The, Wag- the Wagner Group, if you, you, know, if you think of, of Russia as a mafia state, which it is, the Wagner Group is just a, one batch of enforcers of the said mafia group, right? They are a relatively low level bunch of thugs. Uh, yes, they've suffered heavy losses, quite rightly so, uh, but no, they're nowhere near the real corridors of power. They are, you know, sort of foot soldiers and maybe a little bit above that within within the broader mafia structure. If anyone were to try to change the the hands of the regime, yes, that could happen. That would be people much higher up. That would be people who are, you know, the the billionaire oligarchs, for example, or high up in the FSB. Uh, the Wagner Group is far too low level to be the ones affecting change. Now, could they be co-opted by someone higher up as a hired muscle to try to co-opt change, to, to, to try to um, enforce change? Sure, but they wouldn't be the ones implementing it. They'd be, you know, they, they, they would only be possibly used as the hammer in the arm of, or in the hand of somebody else uh, actually, actually directing it. But it's very unlikely. And there are better... There are better solutions within Russia for those who might want to affect such change than the Wagner Group. The Wagner Group's primary um, expertise lies in going to war-torn regions and recruiting, let's say, local troops as mercenaries uh, to then commit violence against civilians. That is their primary expertise. And that's kind of what they're doing in Ukraine as well, right? Except in Ukraine, they're literally forcing Ukrainians, forcibly conscripting Ukrainians to then go and fight other Ukrainians. Or rather, in the occupied territories, they facilitate the forcible conscription by the occupation authorities and then function as some sort of barrier troops, right? And and then function as the ones who actually force them to go and fight uh, on the battlefield itself. Um, They're nowhere near high enough to be be the ones affecting change. Um, Tom, you got cut off somewhere asking much a question and it felt like you had already finished your question so we weren't entirely sure whether you got cut off or not i i can't quite remember well i don't know where i got cut off i was probably being quite winded talking about psychological biases and i, I, I may have continued for a minute or two afterwards um 
I think the point I was trying to make is if you look at people in Russia um, who are being fed propaganda, you can see it quite easily that they're being fed, uh, you know, a completely different information diet from people in the West. They're not being told the truth about certain things. They're being told loads of lies. Psychological biases like confirmation bias, cognitive dissonance, availability heuristics, etc. mean that what they see of the world is how they will think the world is because they literally don't know something else. If they do know, if they do see something else, if someone does tell them the truth, they're unlikely to want to believe it because they'll have that "are we the baddies" moment, and so as a result, they won't want to know the truth, and so as a result, they'll seek out something that is a comforting lie. Um, I think we're all prone to this, and you can see it in domestic politics in in any country. I think, although I won't, I won't uh, go into that because it, it's divisive and off topic. But I think the thing is, just as it's easy to see from the outside looking in that Russian people are victim to this, and it might be easier to see it in the side of those political people that you don't agree with, it's very difficult to see it in one's own self. And a really wise thing that we can do, although it does take a certain amount of intellectual uh, humility and a bit of tolerance of um, feeling uncomfortable, is to just notice when you might just be being fed information that you already agree with or that you're dismissing something out of hand simply because it makes you feel uncomfortable rather than on the sort of uh, intellectual informational merits uh, of the information, if that makes sense, when you reject something out of hand. It's just a very wise thing to do. Um, I just wanted to raise something very briefly. I've just watched a really good... Uh, document, not documentary, um, interview on a podcast. Um, There's a psychiatrist called Dr. Drew. He's one of those American TV psychiatrists, but it was a good interview. And he's interviewed uh, a chap called um, Dr. James Fallon, who's a neuroscientist. And they were talking all about um, psychopathy and is Vladimir Putin psychopathic? And of course, it was right up my street. So anyone that's actually interested in my constant rants about Putin being psychopathic uh, may enjoy watching this podcast. It, it's an hour and a half long, so it's like a deep dive. Uh, I've just tweeted it out. Um, I don't know if we can share it in the nest or anything, um, but I just wanted to make people aware of it. Um, I'm also looking to see if I can get some speakers to join us here in, in Walter Space at some point. So, uh, yeah, just wanted to share that news with you. Excellent. Thank you very much, Tom. Anybody interested in why and how Putin is a psychopath, go to Tom's profile and it's going to be the most recent tweet. Easy. Um, okay, let's go to Raver and then to MP, and we're also trying to connect the uh, CJ up. Raver. Yeah, dealing with with the, the Wagner group. Um, based on the information we have coming out of uh, Africa, it appears that they use Mau Mau tactics uh, with their own people to make them part of a, a horrible, sadistic enterprise. The chance of them. Uh, breaking faith with Putin when they know that they've got nowhere else to run after what they've done, I think is pretty low. DSS never broke faith with Hitler. I mean, maybe, but I, I think they're they're a bit less ideological. Still, I mean, a lot less ideologically driven. I think they're entirely opportunistic and nothing else. Maybe I'm wrong in that assessment. Maybe I'm a bit too cynical but, about you know, it. But... Sorry, Domit, but the the, the important. Thing, and I completely agree with you that they, they did the slow level tax. They did tools 
in the hands of Putin. And Putin created Prigozhin. For God's sakes, he was a he was a cook. He was the chief of. He had a catering company before he became, you know, Wagner Group person. So, so I don't think they, they they will turn on Putin. And even if they would, Putin made sure that they don't have the tools to do that. That's just it. And Donna, my point is, is less about uh, Wagner Group's ideology. Uh, they're not uh, the politically motivated uh, soldiers that the SS were, but they employ the same type of Mau Mau tactics where there is, after, after you join the Wagner Group and you are forced to or willingly participate in atrocities, where else are you going to go? It, you're in for life. There is no getting out and going anywhere but prison. Okay, yeah, Raver, I, I see what you mean now. I think you're right. I think, you know, organized crime is the other option, I guess, the other kind of get out or other alternative. But yeah, I, I completely agree with uh, they're They're kind of made into what they are by circumstances, and, and that's what they're, uh, they're going to stay. Okay, let me see if I can get some job now. Okay, maybe this will work. Okay, MP, go ahead. Yeah, I just want to continue with that Wagner Group uh, idea. I think so the worst threat, you know, against Putin would be that FSO and GRU would, would you know, to get a plan against something, against him, you know, with his syllabus. And and then they would kind of, kind of get the army support from, you know, first tanks, uh, <coughs> first tanks guard army. But Wagner Group is not capable because, as you guys know, the GRU guys are ex-spetsmats mostly. And, you know, they do the operation well, the blood spills and everything spills like Salisbury attack and et cetera, those, you know, blowing up, you know, ammo depots in Europe. So uh, Wagner Group has no that kind of capability what was mentioned before. So, yeah, yeah, that's that's I, I, if, if everybody remembers about the intelligence agencies, what, what Russia has, it's a, they have a F, FSR. Uh, which like change bond organization type, then they have the FSB, which kind of sort of, you know, CIA, but not exactly. Then they have a GRU, which is a military intelligence agency. And then they have this new FSO, which is, which is Putin's like Praetorian Guard, where he drafts, you know, basically his personal protection detail and, and much more. And he can actually raid the FSB or GRU uh, with this FSO element or, you know, combined with some of these agencies. So just my comments. Thanks. Yeah, I, I think uh, if Putin is following your typical uh, dictatorship uh, playbook, he's going to keep all of his barons uh, equally distrustful of each other so that no group or cabal can really come together and start to form a power, power center that could threaten him. Um, it makes the state horribly inefficient, but it keeps the guy at the top uh, safe uh, for the longest possible time. Look how long it took for uh, people to uh, finally pull off a successful act against Hitler and even just injure him, let alone kill him. And then for anybody who was uh, curious about my uh, reference to Mau Mau, it was a, a African uh, uprising uh, against the British colonial powers, but the Mau Mau would kidnap uh, villagers and children and then force them to participate in atrocities to turn them into soldiers who felt like they had no 
no nothing left to do but fight for the Mau Mau. Yeah, and and once you're in something like that, right? It's it's kind of similar in a way to uh, Russian army training, so to speak, isn't it? With um, getting people out of any any semblance of uh, a sense of guilt or humanity anymore, right? Absolutely. CJ, to, to change tack somewhat, there was a question here for you just after you dropped, uh, and then Yehuda had to answer it instead. But I'll, I'll pose it to you again, regardless. Um, so, CJ, there's a question. Why don't um, artillerists place themselves inside of uh, woods or trees instead of forests, say? Why do they keep showing up in open fields when it's a lot easier to hit them back? So this is a good question. I mean, I came up just to respond because Tom had mentioned Dr. Drew, and that's my alter ego. No, that's a very bad Yehuda joke. No, so the, the reasons why they may be in an open field, which does seem like a very easy target, is an open field is very easy to quickly get in and out of, right? Because with the towed artillery, it needs to be a place where you can bring a truck up, detach it, shoot, attach it again. And the thing about a wood line, like if you saw the video from about a week ago where Russia was able to destroy a couple towed artillery pieces, particularly the M777, the way they did it was they got them while the um, the truck was backing up into the woods with the gun, and uh, they were pretty vulnerable. So, you know, once you're found, it doesn't matter kind of where you are if you're in the woods, but they can see you. It's just as bad as if you're in the open and they can see you. So they may be sacrificing cover and concealment for speed. So it really is going to depend on the situation. But it's a lot easier to shoot in an open field than it is in the woods. Okay. Yeah, so can I, uh, can I change the topic slightly? Uh, I was going to, going to ask you guys your thoughts about the uh, upcoming Madrid summit. Because today, uh, Gidanas Nauseda from Lithuania uh, had a piece in Washington Post, and he's basically uh, outlined the needs of the alliance. Uh, for the future, and one of the, uh, I think there are three proposals. One of them is declining, uh, de- declaring Russia as a long-term adversary, and uh, other was about, well, basically showing up the defenses of the eastern flank, which is kind of the same thing that Kaya Kalas was talking about, and all the leaders from the eastern flank basically are talking about, especially from Poland and the Baltic states. So, according to a thing I saw just just a while ago, uh, Chancellor Schultz says that it would be unwise and it would play to Russian hands if NATO would uh, to repeal the uh, NATO-Russia founding act from 1997. And... What is interesting from my point of view, I don't think so. So, of course, the narrative is that by saying um, by saying that uh, we have to uh, keep the founding act from 1997 uh, in place, Schultz is basically uh, signaling that he is against a permanent basis for NATO troops on the eastern flank. My problem with that line of thinking, though, is that, well, I think from the I don't think it would be a problem to because you know the the founding act of course it kind of in a russian interpretation it involved a promise not to move permanent bases eastward but basically the founding act and according to of the um, interpretation of many us administrations it basically reiterates 
in the text that NATO remains a sovereign uh, decision maker and Russia doesn't have the veto over any of the NATO's uh, of the alliance decisions. And uh, it also states that NATO will strengthen the defenses in the new member states uh, and will allow new member states in. So it's just, I think it's just, it's, and Russians, of course, did that because, you know, it's uh, from James Baker telling, I think he told that Yeltsin or Gorbachev uh, even, he, well, but there was this famous line, not one in East, right, that NATO won't move after they were even talking about, you know, not basing uh, NATO troops in the eastern part of Germany after the unification. But this is, I think, uh, the saying that there is some magical, basic line in the founding act from 1997, which Russia itself broke many times and many pieces of that act were basically uh repealed by history just to simply put it from the georgian invasion uh, onwards uh so I, I think the only problem that shows might be thinking uh or i'm thinking about is because the act declares clearly and states as clearly that nato and russia are not adversaries so this is the thing i think you should repeal i don't know what's what your guys thoughts about that if if it's even like if the document itself uh, is a obstacle that has to be repealed or it's just about political will because I, I think I tend to uh, think the latter right if the political will be there there will be no obstacles like NATO founding act because you know the situation changed dramatically and nobody really uh, apart from the Russians nobody really cares about this uh, this piece of paper the document uh, remains in place because it can be used at a later stage to tie Russia in containment back to its initial promises. That is the key thing about the continuity of government. At some point in time, Russia will have a new government uh, after it has been utterly defeated and contained. In such instance, that new Russian government can revert back to actually contain itself and comply with its own commitments under this Huntley Act. Up until that time, uh, the sovereignty, as you quite rightly highlighted, of NATO to decide within its own discretion as to how to defend its members as a response to threats remains in place. So whether Mr. Scholz wants to play with this or not, that is just for the political, shall we say, audience. But at the same time, he recently, at his visit in Lithuania, committed that Germany would strengthen its local base in Lithuania, for which it is responsible, that it would uh, deliver more um, staff, supplies and logistics to Lithuania. And uh, Lithuania said, yeah, yeah, bring it on. That's fine. And it, this will have to happen. And uh, no matter who comes after Mr. Scholz sooner rather than later, uh, that commitment will be uh, served. There's no question. So keep the act. And as you said, the rest is realpolitik. And don't forget uh, the Russian narrative, as you quite rightly indicated, Maciej, the Russian narrative is based on their own misdeeds and their willingness to constantly admonish the other side to comply with something. They have no motive and at least no inclination recently since their uh, more recent colonial acts towards Georgia, if you want to start there. I would even go further, but fine. Um, their hybrid warfare waged upon the West is already in contravention of that founding act. So uh, they have done nothing. 
Therefore, we can just keep the paper for a later date. Thank you, Axel. And, and just in in few words, the only ones who have ever tried to violate anything, any provisions of the Russia-NATO funding act uh, were indeed the Russians. And that's something that has to, gone back, to, to be gone back to again and again. Uh, nor was there an actual ever commitment, you know, that, that much brought up earlier with either Gorbachev or Yeltsin. And Gorbachev himself you know, vociferously denied it publicly later on when, when inquired uh, whether there was any such commitment on, on the part of NATO as to stay out of, let's say, uh, ex warsaw countries, and there was no such commitment given per Gorbachev. Uh, just something that should be noted real quick as well. CJ. First, uh, mic check. Doman, can you hear me? Loud and clear. Yeah, unfortunately, I have to go soon. I'll, I'll be listening, but I got to do some work. But, uh, you know, I'll say something pretty controversial, which might stir people up. And again, I want to be clear. This is not necessarily what I believe. But I wonder if Monte's comment about Schultz is going along with this sort of military idea or trend that since Russia, you know, regardless of the, the war in Ukraine, is becoming degraded more militarily, that perhaps a, a stronger commitment won't be necessary in the future. Now, I don't believe this should be pursued because if anything, this war shows the necessity of having a strong eastern flank. And I think, you know, permanent bases are a much cheaper option than this deployment the U.S. is doing right now, which is, you know, 50,000 troops in an expeditionary format. It's just it's not only time consuming, it, it changes family dynamics. It's extremely expensive. Again, you know, the what's the atrocities in Ukraine are the primary effort. But if we want to talk long term, I think, you know, some smaller permanent bases are a much better solution. Um, but I wonder if, if people are already thinking the war is over and, you know, what's the point of, of a strong Eastern NATO? Did we lose CJ or did I lose audio? I was in asking myself exactly the same question. We lost CJ, uh, clearly, <laughs> seeing that we were both asking ourselves the same question. Uh, luckily, he dropped off just a, a split second before you started speaking. Otherwise, that'd be, I, I'm sorry. Sometimes it's difficult to know whether somebody lost their audio or if everybody else lost them. Um, right on the point of losing audio, uh, Alex Cotelli. Yeah, sorry. I'm. Um, yeah. Uh, trying to work through getting people up, etc. Uh, Alex, thank you. Yeah, I, I think it was uh, in relation also to some. Uh, uh, I think um, I think on Twitter I, I read somebody's post, and actually, actually, it's, it was on quite high level. So essentially, uh, for example, how is NATO planning to defend Estonia or other Baltic countries? Uh, the concept presumes uh, Russia can override and then uh, it will be kind of taken back for uh, within next uh, 180 days or something, which is uh, what, six months? I mean, six months of occupation, like uh, imagine Bucha. So essentially, uh, even though NATO is Alex, that is not Alex. Them. Alex, that is, no, no, sorry. This is not the concept of NATO. This is not the the plan. This is not the uh, the current plan at all, and it hasn't been the plan for quite some time. And we've had General Ben Hodges discussing exactly this some uh, weeks ago. Okay, so but I, I think the idea that you need bigger presence um, comes directly from that. Like uh, it should not be allowed. For Russia to take any territory because uh, as soon as it's taken it's like there is nothing left there that's my idea oh we, we agree alex um 
I agree. Axel agrees. Uh, General Ben Hodges, I think, agrees thoroughly with with that assessment as well. Um, every everybody agrees. Um, and this is something that actually General Hodges highlighted in his uh, previous appearance on the space. The next one is coming up on Monday. Uh, by the way, for anybody who's who's not aware, in just uh, three days' time, we'll have General Ben Hodges back up with us here on the Water Report space. Um, but that that is something he has indeed highlighted: the importance of being able to stop any Russian invasion immediately in its tracks, uh, as soon as they they would be wanting to, uh, you know, potentially start one against a NATO member state, such as, for example, Estonia. Absolutely, Alex. Without without a shred of a doubt. Uh, it would be crucial to stop them in their tracks immediately and not uh, uh, not play any such, uh, you know, training space for time tactics. And the, the NATO leadership is well aware of that. Okay, VSL. Good afternoon. I had a question for you, uh, Doman, uh, and a, a bit more uh, from the perspective. You asked a uh, question which stick around with me, uh, and I wondered if you had the answer already given to you and the question is um, what's the difference between um, Russian night vision and um, uh, US night vision Uh, and I find that quite interesting uh, as a subject if if we can get into that or in a broader scope maybe if you're asking me I have no damn idea (laughs) well I was wondering if you got that answer uh, um, or that question resolved yet so if uh... i i don't recall ever being ever having encountered that question per se uh, i do remember a note yesterday specifically regarding whether russians are getting night vision goggles supplied in greater number from china uh, but that that was never touched upon uh, since it was first raised um let's call it 30 hours ago that well near 30 hours ago uh, but I, I don't think I've ever encountered the question of the difference between U.S. and Russian night vision equipment. Um, I have no idea where to even start now. You know, if we had Portland around, perhaps uh, he might be able to advise, or maybe even M, if he'd be so kind as to jump up and talk about this, even though I know that uh, night vision goggles wouldn't qualify telecoms equipment. Uh, but I, I have no I have no clue whatsoever. Well, thank you. It's, uh, maybe if uh, somebody wants to... <laughs> We will well, be we're, glad. We're getting, I think. we're getting, we're getting M up. Maybe he'll be uh, wanting to have a stab at it. Let's see what happens. Uh, it's. Uh, I mean, I'd be curious to know. Absolutely. Uh, hi, M. Do you know anything about Russian versus American night vision equipment? Actually, no. I heard M, and I was going to ask for anyone to repeat the question. So, Russian NG, uh, NVGs versus American NVGs. Yes. If there's any differences or any. Any any technical differences, perhaps? I don't know. I don't really understand. I mean, the question was initially aimed at me, and I have no clue whatsoever. No, I don't have any information. And uh, what I can possibly add is probably some of the Russian special forces operating in uh, NVGs uh, would have sourced them from uh, Western suppliers through covert effort. But uh, I don't know. Uh, it all depends on giving... Uh, specific type versus a specific type and reviewing their data sheets so no i currently don't have any up-to-date information on comparisons sorry thank you and thanks very much for coming up here with my uh, my best shot uh under the current circumstances of attempting this and yeah i, I knew that this would be a, a long shot regardless 
Um, thank you very much. Thank you, thank you for being so kind as to, uh, as, as to jump up on a moment's notice. Right, uh, Matthew. Anything for we... you, my friend. Thanks. Uh, Mathieu, shall we delve into what we flagged we're going to delve into about uh, 20, 25, 30 minutes ago? Specifically, the um, accession of uh, Ukraine to candidate status for accession to the European Union. Um, Mathieu, have you commented on it in the space yet? Because I don't think you were around when, it first, when the news first came out and then I wasn't around later in the, in the night. Um, or have you not shared your thoughts on it in the slightest yet? No, and uh, I don't have that many thoughts, to be honest with you. I think ultimately it's just an important step. I was, to be honest, being cynical about politics in the European Union. I was quite surprised that it happened on uh, Thursday, right? Because the uh, European Council is still ongoing and it means that there was a political will to basically resolve the issue before everybody met probably these things happen this way. I have read like uh, the documents itself because I don't know if you have information on that domain, but there was some talk about the conditions. And uh, so I think that may be a little bit of a, of a problem uh, going into the future. Uh, I mean, what conditions were basically uh, will, will be put in place. I was talking uh, two days ago to a diplomat that works in uh, in Brussels. And what he said is that from his point of view and looking historically at the EU accession, there is no real, how to put it, um, there is no real um, set baseline for how much of a percentage of Aki Comuner, so, so the, the requisite requisites for a, a candidate uh, state, you have to fulfill before there is a realistic uh, chance that you will become a member, right? So, so basically, what what is uh, what he was saying? It's he said just clearly to me, it's all politics. So basically, you will still uh, you will still uh, the timeline will be defined by politics. Of course, the Ukrainians, I think, they're moving quite well on uh, fulfilling the. Uh, requirement and uh, they're quite determined to do so but in the end the decision will be you know uh, in the hands of, uh, of, of of all the countries that are currently member states although i would say uh, to to finish my, my my thinking on this i think there is a tendency on people who have this really bitter and and especially a polish perspective uh, that i that i sometimes share but sometimes i don't it's it's kind of cynical and so so people who basically disregard the fact that ukraine received the candidate status saying that well it doesn't mean anything because uh, still the process can be extended and and stuff like that and i think this is this type of argument is uh at its root disingenuous because the same people were saying some time ago that germany and france whatever will do everything to block candidate status for Ukraine, right? So now it happened, they are saying it really didn't happen, anything didn't happen. They are right to, uh, to point in the fact that, yes, it will, make, it will take some time, but I think politically it's still an important act, right? And the uh, Ukrainians wouldn't be as joyful and as, uh, you know, overwhelmed by it even 
if it wasn't an important step for them. And I think it is an important step. Of course, it has to be followed by the determination to push the process forward because the process will, won't finish by itself. But I, I, I just... I, I, I just I would just say disregarding the weight of what happened is just uh, as I said it's just disingenuous and and uh, and it's 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 about people trying to basically keep their worldview intact although things are changing right yes they are yes they are um, so just to clarify right for anyone who's not aware yes Ukraine now has exceeded to candidate status. That doesn't mean negotiations have started yet. So first, something, some conditions need to be fulfilled before the negotiations actually start. Then the negotiations start, and then the actual chapter-by-chapter fulfilling of the acquis communautaire start. And then all of that is fulfilled, and then it goes back to a vote of the European Council to actually accept the country. So it's a bit, little bit complicated. On the plus side, however, apparently, I've not seen what the conditions are. At least I've not looked into what the conditions are to, to start negotiations. They apparently, according to Ukrainian media, are going to be relatively straightforward and uh, it, the, the Ukrainians will be, at least the Ukrainian government, the legislature suggests that they will be trying to work as hard as they possibly can to get it all done as quickly as possible. That is quite heartening, so to say. Um, oftentimes, in, in recent couple of decades, Quite a lot of countries, when they were faced with, you know, now we've got candidate status, they kind of slowed down on the whole um, uh, processes because that was already seen as a domestic political win and a domestic political win enough to kind of try to win the next election off the back of it. And then it wasn't so necessary to actually go through with all the hard work. Now, Ukraine has a whole lot more of much harder work to do right now, and this probably seems comparatively kind of easy. And that might be the reason why they'll be very happy to push through with it very quickly, very directly, and try to see how much they, so how much of it they can actually get done in the next, uh, you know, in the coming months to actually start with negotiations in earnest. And I can only hope that they will indeed do that and... Um, you know, get get stuff done quite quite soon. Um, so, what would what would be, from your perspective, uh, what would be the uh, political, um, how to put it, uh, requirements uh, for some of the countries apart from the you know written requirements? Because, for example, Schultz and I think von der Leyen talked about this, but von der Leyen didn't. Uh, of course, the president of the EU Commission. Uh, didn't link it specifically to the membership of Ukraine, but Scholz did, uh, about basically changing the rules of voting and in uh, certain critical cases resigning from the unanimity uh, clause, right, in the European Council and, um, and going into majority voting, right? Do you think realistically this is going to be something that some of the countries will like to basically address before they will allow uh, the process of Ukrainian membership to, to go forward? Membership, yes. Yes. Negotiations, no. Right? It's a big difference. Ukraine will not be a member of the European Union for the next, you know, until a decade from now, give or take. 
that's you know two electoral cycles, maybe three electoral cycles in the vast majority of EU member states. Uh, that that's how long this is going to take. Whatever conditions the governments currently in power try to put forward, those are going to be different conditions from whatever is politically expedient in all of those respective member states. In you know when when this question comes up in earnest, so that's why I don't think it's particularly important. Um, what is important is what conditions they'll impose. To, to start the negotiating process with Ukraine. And I think those conditions are the ones that are going to be relative, you know, relatively straightforward. Um, I don't think that is going to be too much of a, too much of a problem um, because there is no point in, in pushing it back. The reason why the negotiations with a bunch of already existing candidates that the states have been pushed back and pushed back was some a lot more... Uh, almost insidious local, you know, nearly local politicking by certain other states. So, for example, Bulgaria having a problem with North Macedonia's conception of what it means to be Macedonian kind of thing. You know, it's, it's very, they're, they're very sort of nebulous points of principle uh, that, that they're raising. And I'm not, I'm, I'm not saying they're completely illegitimate, surely not, but I, I just can't foresee anything any anything quite of the same type uh, being raised with Ukraine for the simple reason that countries that would, would raise such sort of cultural objections either certainly aren't in the European Union, you know, like Russia, for example, and therefore cannot raise such objections. Or, you know, maybe Poland could be a country that could in principle be thought of by some to want to be raising such objections, except Poland will not. Because Poland is wholly and thoroughly committed in trying to get Ukraine into the European Union and trying to get Ukraine through the process of joining the European Union, right? So one of the countries that could conceivably be conceived as to be and want to be raising such historical arguments won't. Absolutely will not. Right. The Polish government is, is as for Ukraine joining the European Union and, and as any government outside of Ukraine is. Um, so they won't try to, you know, put stumbling blocks in front of them just for the sake of there being the stumbling blocks. Um, and, and that's what makes me feel relatively positive that at least the negotiation stage would be reached relatively quickly. And that, as well as, um, you know, say the comments from, for example, from Ursula von der Leyen last, uh, last week on Friday, uh, so a week ago from now, almost exactly, um, about Ukraine already having gone through about 70% of what they need to do. And then since then, they've actually adopted the Istanbul Convention, which is, which is a good step, not just adopted, but also ratified the Istanbul Convention, which is a good step, because uh, that's one of the things that they would have to have done at some point. Anyway, you know, it seems that, that the Ukrainian parliament is working with relatively good expediency on all these matters, specifically with the Istanbul Convention. I think the vote was something like 259 to 8, something along those lines, maybe 258 to 9, doesn't really matter. But there's a vast, vast, overwhelming majority of parliamentarians in, in Ukraine voting for it. So uh, I, I think that it, that's just an example of the reasoning why I think that these things will move relatively quickly. Um, Ukraine, especially in the current position, is quite happy to accept any of these, you know, very, very formal, very bureaucratic requirements that might be levied off them. So that part is going to go rel through relatively quickly. Whereas, you know, the actual procedure of adopting the entirety of the key community, of course, that is more difficult. That takes a much longer time. And Macron will be, you know, well out of 
uh, out of his own term limits by then. The, the, it is guaranteed, I can guarantee you, there will be a different president in France when it comes to the actual question of accession for Ukraine than sits there now, simply because of the French law uh, that says that you're limited to two terms. Um, and and the same goes, even though not on the term limit basis for Scholz. Scholz is not going to be chancellor when the question of accession of Ukraine comes up. Uh, because he won't, because somebody else will be by then. Um, so I think from that perspective, it's relatively straightforward. What I was quite disturbed by, oh, is there no such law, Ben? Sorry, is there no law of two-term limit? I thought there was a two-term. No, why no. Why was it said that Macron cannot get re-elected? Because he can, he can be re-elected until uh, the day time. Oh, so he can. But some, there was a lot of commentary that was saying, okay, Macron won his second term, therefore it doesn't matter what he does anymore because he can't no, run for election no. anymore. These, these, are, these are people mistaken uh, two different countries. One of them is France and the other one the is... The United States. States. Right. So is, is when who's the last French president that served the third term? None. Okay, good. So They, they, probably... they tend to be elected late and die right after. So... It hasn't happened, but it can happen. It's not constitutionally impossible. Okay, so the problem is Macron's too young for this to be guaranteed. I apologize. Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. Actually, there's, a, there's, another, there's another country with a, a term limit, which is Russia, of course. So in that respect, Russia is more democratic than France. But yeah, that's the neither here or there. I mean, there's, there's plenty more countries that term limit. But so they abrogated the, the, the constitution, right? Because after the, the swap deal with Medvedev... Yes. They uh, they they changed the constitution, so now Putin basically is, has like I don't know two thousand thirty something is is probably his uh, his limit. I I don't I think it yeah I don't know if, if he's on his uh, so he was elected again as president in two thousand and twelve uh, I think no fourteen yeah two thousand and yeah two thousand and twelve I think because Medvedev was two thousand eight two thousand twelve right I think uh, so, something like that. Yeah, because when the smallest crash happened, uh, Putin was prime minister. I remember that distinctly. So, so yeah, Poland also have uh, has uh, two-term limit. So I think there are many countries that took the, you know, and uh, but actually the two-term limit is not uh, enshrined in the U.S. Constitution, right? Uh, it's just, yes, it is. Uh, um... Oh, it's a. It's, uh, it's like an amendment that came in, in the fifties or sixties. Uh, oh yes, it's yeah. an amendment. You're right. You're yeah, completely right. Because it was after Roosevelt, right? Exactly. After, after the second Roosevelt. Um. Anyway, no. So it's it's other countries banned as well. Maybe people are just confusing France with Slovenia because Slovenia has a two-term limit on the head of state. Um. Anyway, the point is, most probably Macron will not be president of France at the point when Ukraine is actually the the question of Ukraine actually joining the European Union comes for. I think that that's quite probable. Um, anyway, uh, the, the the key point is that that's not really probably going to be an issue, and we'll have a whole other set of issues by then. The point of majority voting, however, actually, I don't think that's going to go away. And um, the problem is, of course, that that requires broad treaty, rever- treaty revision or a whole new treaty, and that's unlikely to be forthcoming because there seems to be no such thing as a, anything close to a majority. Uh, of, of so United you need unanimity to force majority. It's just uh, precisely uh, Gordy and not. No, how do you call it? Never mind. So, Gordian but, not. Yeah, Gordian not. So uh, the other thing I would worry about uh, is this 
kind of tendency, and it was heard in Plotner, Mr. Plotner, that is an advisor to Scholz, uh, saying, and I think this type of thinking is, is present in the uh, EU, that uh, what he said was that you don't get a free right on rule of law just because you are attacked, you're uh, uh, at war, right? And uh, so, so the thinking might be behind this that if we not, if we will not fall, basically Ukraine to accept all the differences, different types of ideological uh, thinking, right now, we will be left with a situation that will be like situation in Poland or Hungary, right? So that's that. That would be my fear, but. Maybe I, you know, no, it's just uh, maybe that's just a narrative, and we'll have to look. But thank you, Domen, for for answering the questions. It's it's really interesting. No, thank you, Maciej. Now, what I'm going to read, what I'm going to raise now, is a more of a, a unpleasant realpolitik um, aspect to all this. So yesterday, Maciej, I'm sure you were following this with bated breath, as was I, uh, as were a few other listeners to this space. Um, there there were a couple of things going on, right? In, in the European Council, let's say, negotiations. One of them was Austria, combined with a couple of other countries, effectively blocking uh, the candidate status accession for Ukraine on the basis that they wanted a clear roadmap for Bosnia and Herzegovina, if not outright candidate status first, uh, as well as, in the case of Austria, trying to get, um, trying to get uh, movement on Albania and North Macedonia, right, to actually progress them into the negotiation phase. At the same time, the new Bulgarian government, well, the current Bulgarian government that just got a no-confidence vote and thus has no power, couldn't remove the Bulgarian veto on the negotiations for North Macedonia. And at the same time, the Serbian president was there apparently supporting Macron to the hilt. Um, do, do you want to brief off of any of that, or um, should, should I outline it a little bit more detail? No, go on. You, you're the Balkan person. Okay, so, <laughs> no, God, no. Um, so so the, the, the thing that I really want to highlight is Vucic, the president of Serbia, seemed quite happy with Macron's idea of having a, a two-speed Europe, right, so to speak, so to have this European political union outside of the European Union, because it seemed that he particularly, specifically, would be quite content in, uh, um, uh, in, in being... Um, how shall we say, a part of only the political union and not uh, and, and, and not a part of the European Union proper, right? I think what's notable here is that, A, he stood up with the French president, with whom he generally politically does not agree in the slightest. B, that this is something that benefits Russia generally as well, uh, because Russia would be quite happy to have a more complicated, less united Europe, and you know, which is just very much aligned generally with whatever Putin says and wants. Um, and C, I think this would play in Vucic's favor substantially as well, simply because I don't think he particularly wants to join the European Union himself. I think he'd be much happier uh, to just stay, uh, let's say, you know, kind of on the outskirts to still be able to um, to to criticize, uh, to criticize and admonish the European Union for whatever they're doing. Um, Much if you want to pick up on any of that, and other than that, we go to Castelli. No, I'm fine. I I, I think the two-speed Europe is just uh, you know that's that's the problem, right? That's the problem is if they basically what happens to Macron's ideas, which he 
basically based his political life on his ideas of reforming, deepening the uh, European integration, right? Because I think the plans before the war were not for extension of uh, European Union, because for them it's something that doesn't help them reach their goals. So they don't want to grow outwards, they want to dig deeper, right? They want to uh, deepen the ties, they want to have more, you know, more, let's say, uh, maybe not centrally, but but certainly more sturdy and more uh, solid uh, European structure. Uh, so that that's the question that I would ask. I don't know about Vucic, what's his game here, because I don't follow Serbian politics that well. Uh, but that that would be just my only comment. Fair enough. Let's get to Cartelli and then to Nula Nula Sedem. Cartelli. Thank you. I had a question about uh, what do you guys uh, like? I asked. I was asked a couple of times what I think about Georgia being uh, kind of excluded for now. What do you guys think um, about this? Like. In terms of long-term impact uh, and the risk? Well, I think it's generally obvious why, right? And I'll tell you, you've outlined why well enough plenty of times. Uh, very simply put, <laughs> the, the government in Georgia has been actively reversing reforms a lot, right? And it's run by one oligarch who controls an insane proportion of the country's wealth. And you know, it's not actually run by the government, but it's the, the, the party that, that runs the government is run by him. And, you know, that's, that's not very good, right? Uh, so it's obvious why Georgia wasn't put in the same bucket as Moldova and Ukraine, because Moldova and Ukraine, at the very least, have very staunchly pro-European governments right now. And that makes it a lot more politically and practically easier to uh, to include them, right? Um, what do we think about the, the prospects? Um, hopefully... There will be a change of um, a change of heart in the top of Georgian politics. They will be more interested in the, you know, genuinely interested beyond words uh, in in a closer European integration. Uh, that would be very beneficial to Georgia, and it would be very beneficial to Europe at large. Uh, but they have to stop being. Right. You know. No, I understand all that. My question is, so one of the requirements is de-oligarchization or whatever. So how are you going to de-oligarch uh, anything without like, uh, yeah, uh, what do you guys expect? So so that somebody will go and kill him, like uh, hang him up or like what? Uh, in terms of uh, how you can de-oligarch, <laughs> like, there are plenty, a lot of uh, rich people in many countries. So, no, I understand what you mean, but, uh, like, uh, how do you prove that the work has been done? Like, he can declare, no, you know what, I have no uh, no power whatsoever, you know, on the executive branch of Georgia, and then what? Like, are we talking about regime change here? Like, well, what is the requirement? So that's one option. Uh, the other option is that uh, Georgia goes through some sort of very particular economic shock by which uh, he kind of not necessarily goes bankrupt, but simply his wealth severely diminishes, especially relatively to the rest of the um, to the rest of the country. Right? Um, doesn't he have some sort of European citizenship already, though, Ivanishvili? Does he have what? I I thought he had. I, did he get one of those golden visas or something? I, I thought he had either PR oh, in does. one of the yeah, EU countries or citizenship. He's under sanctions. 
these are the sanctions like uh, other oligarchs. And uh, honestly, I would say like this individual sanctions on these people like uh, put, I don't know, 300, 500, 10,000, as many as you want. But like you guys, uh, it looks like the country is now being punished for something and uh, something that may not be uh, under their control, like how you're going to the oligarch, uh, the, the, the country, he's, there is no formal ties. Uh, this is all in the shade. So how are you going to, uh, again, uh, unless uh, this is one then say directly that change regime or, you know, again, you know, you, you could uh, have sanctions on, uh, like I said, 10,000 people. I don't care, but um, don't, uh, don't cut out. Because here is where I see risks. People will get lazy. There will always be the reason to prove that something has not been done. Uh, the requirement is, uh, I'm not sure, like you, you, can't, you can't obviously c claim, hey, go and change regime and then come back. Because uh, this can be bloody uh, affair. And uh, there may be, the other day when you go and change regimes, they will say, oh, you know what, after, you know, the civil war, whatever, uh, and it will be delayed for another three decades. Just, um, yeah, I think individual sanctions are more effective. Because, uh, li like I said, yes, they are uh, associated with Putin. Yes, that association should become toxic. Uh, but, uh, again, don't punish... Um, like everybody will be punished. I know that this is important, especially in the wake of, uh, you know, there are people basically earning money by working somewhere in Europe. If uh, if at some point this becomes a problem, then uh, then it's gonna be bloody. Uh, it, it will become really bloody in, in Georgia. Like I don't know. Anyway, uh, yeah, I, I think these are because it's very easy to make some kind of exceptional list it's very hard to get out of that exception i think the way they've put it is very much a wait and see right they basically said okay georgia right now this doesn't work let's see if something changes whatever way it changes right we're not going to tell you how to do it um just your domestic political situation especially with respect to it really has to be clarified and has to be a lot better than it is now for us to be wanting to consider things. And, you know, maybe that can be done by, I don't know, him divesting fully. I, I can't really tell. Um, Axel? Um, yeah, well, the key thing, Alex, is to wait for what happens after Russia has been named, uh, named state sponsor of terrorism. At that point in time, those in Georgia who've been benefiting from this uh, economic portion of hybrid warfare will come under sincere pressure, as you can imagine. Just think it through what it means for that elite. I agree. I agree. By the way, there was a next step made, uh, I think, today uh, on that road. I think Senate uh, advanced to that bill. Yeah, uh, the Senate, the U.S. Senate Foreign Affairs Committee or whatever they called, basically told the, um, the Secretary of State to declare them a state sponsor of terrorism so that then the House and the Senate can actually vote on it and then Biden can sign it. But it's the first step of four. Yeah, this is 